Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Like, I want to be Artre you in my <laughs> life, like... I want to be the luck dragon. Oh, we- yes! <laughs> Hell yeah! Hello there, I'm Angauri. And I'm Bonnie. And you are listening to the Community Library. This episode, Bonnie and I will be discussing The Neverending Story by Michael N. Day. But before we do, can you tell us a bit about yourself, Bonnie, please? Okay, I'm Bonnie. I'm a friend of Angauri's. Um, we went to school together. I like books. I can roller skate pretty well. So um, let's get into it. Our first segment is Sparknotes Says. So in this segment, we're going to introduce the story and the characters and some of the general themes. Um, Just so that you know, this podcast will not be spoiler free. We are going to give you all the spoilers. I'm just going to read you the blurb on the back of my copy, just so that you get an idea of what the book is about. Small, fat, and insignificant, Bastion Balthazar Bucks is nobody's idea of a hero, least of all his own. One day he steals a mysterious book and hides away to read it, only to find himself stepping through its pages into the world of Fantastica. Enchanted, perilous, dying Fantastica is waiting for a messiah, its fairy people doomed until Bastion appears as their saviour, and in doing so, saves himself. My blurb is pretty much the same, minus a few words. I think it's a good introduction to the story, but it's also very misleading. It's all about him, which is interesting, I think, given what happens to him thinking everything's about him. I think it's also interesting how it says he saves himself. More like he destroys himself. (laughs) (laughs) I think a few people might have seen the film, the 1984 film. Something like that. And the film actually only covers the first half of the book. So in the first half of the book, Bastion is reading the never-ending story, following the story of Atreyu and Falcor, the luck dragon, as they try to help the childlike empress who is sick and dying, and she's the ruler of Fantastica. They are trying to figure out what's wrong with her, how to help her, how to save her. They realize the only way to save her is for her to be given a new name and a human must give her a new name and that's where Bastion comes in. The second half of the book follows Bastion actually diving into the book and becoming part of the story himself and that's kind of when it all goes (laughs) (laughs) pear-shaped. Okay should we move on to our next segment which is judging a book by its cover. My favorite thing to do. In this segment we will not only talk about the literal cover of the book, but also the materiality of it and what it means to read a physical book and how that impacts the story. Um, So I have a really recent copy that is illustrated. Well, the front cover is illustrated by my favorite illustrator in the world. His name's Chris Riddell. So on the front cover, we have the the emblem that's on the Orin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Of the two snakes 
fighting each other. Um, and then there's Atreyu on Felkor, which I think is interesting that Bastion's not actually on the front cover. Um, and so it's, you know, maybe the real hero. My copy has everything that happens in the real world is in italics and everything that happens within Fantastica is in just like normal straight font, yeah. um, which maybe this is like the lit student in me reading into it too far because I'm sure it was just, you know, handy. Um, but I found it interesting that everything that happened in reality happened was in italics because it felt less real. If it's in italics, it's like thoughts, but it's reality. And so everything that happened in Fantastica seemed more grounded in reality than everything that happened in real life. My copy is very old. It's So it's the first English copy. So it was published in 1983. But this copy is interesting because it's published in red and green. So everything that happens in the real world is in red text and everything that happens in the story is in green text. Mm. One thing I really, really loved about the different colors, or in your case, italics and non-italics, is how it actually crosses the boundaries between the worlds. When Bastion first dives into the book, Bastion is kind of just standing in the sand and is wondering if anybody else is reading the book at that moment because he has dived into the book he's left it in the real world and he's wondering if anyone else is reading it and if he could send them a sign and so he writes in the sand bbb his initials and it's in red which implies that it is taking place in the real world then we go into the book within a book and it, we become the person reading the book. We become who Bastion was and he is sending us a me message from within the book and it kind of blurs the lines between whether this is a story or whether this is actually happening to someone and we're the next person to pick up the book. And I like how the materiality of the book and the physical object of the book is quite an integral part to the storytelling. <laughs> Let's move on to where in the world. In this segment, we will talk about setting the limitations of the world and Ende's world building. We're assuming reality is our world, or I did anyway, that it has all the limitations of our world. But when we enter Fantastica, we learn a few things. We learn that it has no borders, there's no limit, there's no end. However, for a human to escape Fantastica, they have to reach the end of Fantastica. And the ivory tower sits central, if you can have a center to infinity. And reading that, I was like, well, that's so hard to grapple with. <laughs> and why would anyone make that a rule of world building? That's so stupid. And then I thought, but wait a second. The universe is like that. Yeah. Our universe has no borders. It's, re it's a really hard concept to grapple with. But I think it's just as hard as grappling with the concept that the universe is infinite mm. and space is infinite. Another thing that, that I wanted to talk about in terms of setting is the rules of life and death mm. in Fantastica. The first death of the book, Atreyu sets off on his quest to help the childlike empress. And so he sets out on his horse, who's called Artax, and it's Artax and Atreyu, like, against the world. 
The first wise old being that they go to see is the big turtle whose name mm. escapes me right now. What's her name? Mola the Aged One. Mola the Aged One. <laughs> but to get to Mola the Aged One, you have to cross the Swamp of Sadness and it makes you so sad that you don't want to go on anymore. And Atreyu is protected because he's wearing the gem of the childlike empress. So he isn't affected by the swamps of sadness. But Artax is. <laughs> and he dies. And it's really sad. Oh, devastating. Especially in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it is one of like the moments of the book that is just quite sad. And there's no escape from that. I think that moment where the horse dies really stands out to me. Because it's, it's a moment of raw emotion Mm. and when you're in this world surrounded by fantastical beings beings that feel no empathy beings that cannot love you suddenly see this boy who's just lost his horse and that's a really raw and emotional thing that anyone reading the book can um, identify with it's the loss of a friend a pet um, someone who is always by your side The other thing that I want to address is when Bastion stabs Atreyu. So when Bastion delves into this world, Bastion is creating Fantastica as he goes through it. With every story that he creates, he forgets his life in the human world. And Atreyu and Falcor think it's very important for Bastion to get back to his human world. But to do that, they need to take the gem away from him. So a battle ensues and it ends in a confrontation between Atreyu and Bastion. That moment is one of the most well-crafted literary moments I think ever. Like I gasped out loud because you just never think that that will happen between those two characters because Bastion idolizes Atreyu. It was, it's incredible that like I can't even describe It, the reading 500 pages worth of the never-ending story is worth it just for the magic of that moment. Yeah. Because um, it's tangible violence. Mm-hmm. And you don't we don't get much tangible violence. There's mention of war. There's mention of fighting. We, we know that battles are going on and people are fighting, but we never get that real gritty, this is me, a human, stabbing, hurting someone I care about and I idolise and I'm tangibly doing it. And that is, it was so confronting. Mm. And especially because the blood is a massive part of it. And I don't think we see blood in any other part of the novel. The line is, Bastion struck Atreyu in the chest, blood spurted from the gaping wound. It's such a human, mortal act of physical violence. And you don't get that because Artax dies in a magical situation people are destroyed in a magical situation fantastica itself in the first half of the book is being destroyed by the nothing which is magical in itself and this is the first time where you have pure human violence and it's really disturbing okay should we move on to talking about the characters we kind of have two main characters in the first half of the book i would argue that atreyu is the lead And Bastion is a version of the reader reading about Atreyu's story. And then as soon as Bastion comes into Fantastica, Atreyu is just shoved to the side and Bastion is like, there's a new sheriff in town. 
I'm here to run this show and I am the hero. At the start, he is a version of the reader. We're rooting for him. We want him to succeed. We want him to save the childlike empress and give her a new name and be be included in this world in which he feels like he truly belongs. And then, and then, and then he is given more power than he has ever had in his whole life. And it goes straight to his head. So with this gem, he is given the power to do what he wishes. And his first wish, do you want to talk about his first wish? Is it to be handsome? Yeah. His first wish before he, you know, he's there to save the world. Like he has things to do places to go and his first wish is he changes his physical appearance the first few things he does is just completely decimate the character we knew he takes away his physical appearance he makes himself strong and with each wish he makes he forgets a part of who he was before each wish costs a memory and so very quickly he becomes a completely different character I found that loss really hard because it's like we've spent a long time sympathizing with a character and now he has the same name but he has none of the same traits at all. He's completely different. I think he becomes the bullies that he was running away from at the start of the book. After stabbing a tree, <laughs> oh my god, um, he kind of has this realization where he thinks, oh, maybe I was not a good leader. Maybe I sucked and maybe I need to stop. Mm. And he buries his sword. He banishes his army. He doesn't want anything to do with them. And he begins this journey all by himself. And when I was reading it, Here's my theory. Yeah. Tell me if this is crazy. So my theory is that once Bastion has kind of begins this journey alone to go back home, he is kind of born again and he goes through the stages of growing up. So previously his wishes were to be the most powerful in all Fantastica, to be the strongest, to be admired, to be emperor. And then his new wishes that start forming his first wish is to be a part of a group mm. and he wants a sense of belonging. He's been alone for so long now and he wants to belong. And then from that, he actually wants a unique identity and he feels that he no longer, he wants to feel included, but he wants to feel included for who he is and how different he is to everyone else. And then finally, he wants to feel loved. And once he receives that wish and he's loved by someone, he realizes that's not enough. I actually want to be able to love someone myself. So you see him lose everything from the bastion that we knew, and then he builds it all back up yeah. again. The first half of the second half, where um, Bastion is becoming the hero he thinks he should be, which is, you know, handsome, powerful. It's sort of a bit of a fable about, you know, I mean, we'll talk about it later, what makes a hero. But the second half is when he actually becomes a hero. He goes through all those steps of self-discovery, of an internal reflection, and places himself in the world where he needs to be rather than where he wants to be. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Atreyu. I love that guy. Atreyu is, like, 
the pinnacle of heroic. And so he's the chosen one. And I don't know if we ever get a reason for that. I mean, he does a great job. Um, but yeah, so he's he gets the gem, um, as Bastion does in the second half, but he never reads the inscription. And so the wishes he make uh, come from the truest place within him because he doesn't know he's making them and he doesn't know he has the power to make them. So he's a hero in, in the true right because he's just acting on necessity, mm. on instinct, on the desperate need to save the childlike empress rather than the desperate need to be a hero. He doesn't abuse his power. And that's what makes a true hero is knowing that you have the power, but using it for good and for the greater good. And he is my favorite. (laughs) Shall we move on to the wonder of them all? The childlike empress. Yes. She's a... A very interesting character. She resides in the ivory tower. She's the driving action of the story because everyone needs to protect her because without her, Fantastica can't survive. And the nothing is is taking over and the childlike empress is dying, which is why Atreyu has to save her. And she's a tricky character because she's, quote unquote, the leader of Fantastica. Everyone looks up to her, everyone respects her. No one wishes any harm on her, really. But she has no judgment. She has no judgment between good or evil. She has no ability to feel emotions. She is just sort of blank. She's she's nothing but idolized. Mm. And her blankness is also shown in the physical descriptions of her. Her hair is white. Um, her skin is white. Everything she wears is white. She lives in the ivory tower. She lives in a white magnolia flower. Everything about her is emotionless Mm. and devoid of passion. The childlike empress is actually not a leader. She is the leader, but she's not a leader. Yeah. And as much as everyone respects her and she is... They need her alive so that Fantastica can survive she doesn't actually wield much power because she refuses to make distinction and to make any change to have any power you need to make some sort of distinction between one thing and another thing i don't know whether we're supposed to think that that is good and that is how leadership should be because it's like obviously we see bastion do it so wrong but are we supposed to think the childlike empress is doing it right yeah i think it's a really interesting idea and a really interesting question and so um You, the listener, let me know uh, what you think. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you can tweet me at Rice, and you can use the hashtag, the community library, and yeah, let me know what you think. I'd be really interested to know. Shall we move on to views and values? Views and values. Themes and concerns. (laughs) So should we tackle book within a book first? Because that makes my head hurt. So obviously we have... The Neverending Story. The book I'm holding is called The Neverending Story. Within this book, Atreyu reads The Neverending Story. <laughs> Little side note from Angari, the editor here. I'm pretty sure Bonnie meant Bastion is reading The Neverending Story. Just to clarify. Okay, continue. Which holds the world of Fantastica. Then within Fantastica, I don't remember what it's called. What's the place with all the writing? <laughs> it's uh, The Old Man of Wandering Mountain. And he lives in a massive egg. (laughs) (laughs) And he basically is writing everything that has ever happened in history. 
and he he's writing the story that is the never-ending story as in the book I'm holding over and over and over and again and that includes the story of Bastion stealing the book going to the attic reading the book following Atreus story all of that yeah which implies that we the reader are also included in that story I assumed so there's a lot of layers and I think it it serves to um challenge our perception of what is real and what is not and which which book are we reading where where do we fit in within the world of the never ending story mm. i've never read any other book that has quite engaged me like this one yeah. it actually physically included me in the story and i think that is such an amazing thing and for any kids reading it i think that's and it's so wonderful and it's really really beautiful to say you are also part of this story. I am writing about you, not only for you, but about you. This is also your story. And I think that is actually a really wonderful message to send. I agree. And the the fact that, I mean, there is some question on sort of ownership and whether they're like, is everything already written out for us? Do we have free will? It teaches us that we do have ownership over the wishes we make and the decisions we choose to make And that is part of something greater than us. And that is important. Shall we move on to connections across the world? When Bastion like comes across, he's, he's, he comes across some group of people and they're singing a song. And the song is written, when I was a little boy with a hey ho, the wind and the rain. This is a line from Twelfth Night. And I only know this, which is a Shakespeare play. And I only know this because we studied it last year <laughs> in Lit. Um, and I actually didn't finish reading it. Don't but really <laughs> <laughs> I watched the movie. Don't tell my Lit teacher. But I, I um, so I recognized that. And I was, and then, and then the thing that killed me was they said, oh, yeah, this song, um, it was written by some other human that came to Fantastica ages ago, someone called Shakespeare. And I was just, I... I laughed really hard. Shakespeare spelt S H E X P E R. Shakespeare. <laughs> and I thought it was very funny. I really liked that. And I I love how it crossed between worlds. Yeah. But I love that it it canonizes Fantastica. Yeah, and I I do love that it never stops being intertwined even when in the second half of the book where just in Fantastica there's no we're the only link to reality. I love that there are little call-outs to, hey, we know your world exists. How Bastion first comes into the world, I thought that was really interesting. In the first half of the book, he slowly breaks down these barriers with various senses. The way I broke it down was the first sense is that he feels. He feels like Atreyu. He sympathizes, maybe even empathizes with him. And then he comes to sight. So Atreyu actually sees Bastion in a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the second barrier. And then another one is sound. So Bastion yeah. screams and they hear it in their world. Yeah, and then he reads it and is like, wait, how'd they hear me? <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of ways to connect with a story. And I feel that as well because... When you first jump into a book, when you're reading it, you feel um, you empathize with the characters and then maybe you gasp out loud. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. 
and you might see them in your mind's eye. So I, I really like how he connected breaking down the barriers to getting to Fantastica with just how people interact with stories anyway. And I, I liked that. Again, it it places that question of who are we in relation to the story. And I like that even as, I mean, I'm 17, I'm not the oldest person in the world, but even so it is like the, maybe I can go into the story. Like mm. make that, that little sense of fantasy and childlike imagination of like, well, maybe there's a chance they can hear me. It's a nice feeling to feel included in something, even if your logic brain is like, it's a book. <laughs> like, it's nice to be like, what if it isn't a book? <laughs> yeah. Should we move on to being a hero and what that means in Fantastica and for Bastion and Atreyu? Obviously, we see this idealistic version of a hero in the first half with Atreyu. Like, he's the perfect hero. He's great. We love him. He doesn't do anything wrong. Like, everything goes wonderfully. We expect Bastion to follow the same journey. We are taught this one trajectory for hero. And if you're given the title of hero, you must be heroic. If you have the gem, you must be heroic. Atreyu is the hero and then Bastion's the anti-hero. The first half, we're seeing through Bastion's eyes, but we're reading the book. So we're kind of in Atreyu. And then the second half... We're in Bastion, we're getting his thought process, like we're in his perspective. And although we can see our Treyu like trying to fix things. And it's an interesting journey for a reader to go on these very, very similar journeys through our Treyu and then through Bastion. Like it really does follow the same beats. It's hard to look at someone who should be a hero as a villain because he does become a villain, but he thinks he's a hero and it, a lot of other people think he's a hero as well. Yeah. And I think it's a good lesson in, like, not taking things at face value and being like, just because you're called a hero, we actually have to look at your actions and the way you carry yourself and the the reason why you're doing the things you're doing to be able to call you a hero. It's not just in the title. We have these two heroes, Atreo and Bastion. And if we accept the theory that Atreyu is the perfect hero mm. and Bastion is the perfect villain mm. or the perfect failing hero. So would you go as far to say that in Fantastica everything is either good or bad or do you think it's slightly mixed in? I don't think Bastion is pure evil and I think he does reconcile but I do think Atreyu is a very pure kind of good like he doesn't really do anything wrong and he's always acting altruistically and he's always he's a very heroic hero. So do you think that Bastion's ability to realize that he has done something wrong and to actually change himself as a person is what makes him human because everything else in Fantastica follows tradition, follows their story. Mm-hmm. Atreyu is the perfect hero. The Childlike Empress is the perfect leader. Fantastica includes pure good and pure evil. And Bastion, what makes Bastion human is that he is somewhere in between. Yeah, I think so. Something that is really prevalent in this book is the power of naming things. The importance of giving the Childlike Empress a name so that she can survive and so that in turn Fantastica fantastic can survive because a human has to do it i take that as it needs to be 
somehow linked to reality to exist. And the way to do that is by giving it a name. The childlike empress is one of the only characters who uses a name that we understand. Mm -hmm. And it's a combination of words in English that mean something else and together they give her her identity. The first quest of the book is the quest to rename her. She actually never gets a name. She gets a title. She gets the childlike empress, the golden-eyed commander of wishes, moon child. That's a title. She's, She's still branded as a child, a person, a leader. She doesn't actually have her own identity. Yeah, and I think... I think it's hard because I don't think she could have her own identity because she is just the medium. Yeah, it, I, like it's hard to describe her because she's so conceptual. Because if you give her a name that is accessible, does that destroy what she stands for by making her too specific? She is an idea in a corporeal form. She's an abstract idea made tangible and that doesn't always translate. <laughs> Let's move on to prejudice and prejudice. In this segment, we will talk about everything that people might be prejudiced against, marginalized groups, and how that is represented in the story, and in particular, in Fantastica, a world that the author has created. The main thing that I found was body image. Do we want to talk about that? I'd love to talk about body image. Um, So Atreyu is like a He's a warrior. He's a muscly little boy. <laughs> like, you know, he's that buff hero and 12, buff twelve-year-old. Buff, buff 12 to be fair. <laughs> um, but then we have Bastion, who's like this chubby little unathletic boy. The first thing he does is change his physical appearance to change himself and look more like the hero he wants to be. It immediately gives the audience the idea that. In order to be a hero, you must be fit and strong and muscly and a man. And that is a concept. That is not a new concept. That has been around forever. When he changes himself to be what he thinks is a hero, what do you think it says about body image when he actually fails in that body? Yeah, I think it's actually quite... Nice, because obviously the first things he changes are the things he is insecure about, are the things that have made his life hard, which is, that's a fair thing to do. If I got magical powers, like, I'd take away everything that makes my life difficult. (laughs) Like, there's no representation in the Neverending Story that he reads of anyone who looks like him, any hero who is anything like him, and although he identifies with Atreyu, the main differences between him and Atreyu is that the physical ones. The fact that he fails is important because those wishes that he made to be strong, to be handsome, actually took away the parts of him that maybe were needed for him to be heroic. Do you think that Michael Ende is telling us you're perfect the way you are or that heroes who are strong are shallow or maybe that changing your appearance actually changes who you are. I think the last one is the closest to what I believe because I think Atreyu is a great hero and he has that sort of athletic body so I don't think he's saying that all athletic 
disembodied heroes are shallow. And I'm, I'm not sure he's even saying that we're perfect the way we are, maybe physically, because I still think Bastion, he has a lot to learn when he enters Fantastica. But yeah, I think it's more about the fact that maybe that's not the most necessary change you have to make to yourself. And those superficial, superficial things are maybe not the most important. I think that's the message that I took. What's most important is harnessing what you're good at and projecting that into the world in a really positive way. Should we talk about race in Fantastica? Mm. So when we first meet Atreyu, he is from a species of people in Fantastica who are called the grass people or the greenskins. And they are hunters and they hunt purple buffaloes. Bastion says while he's reading the book, he imagined a Native American person. It was quite obvious to me in the book Mm. that the grass people's culture is very reminiscent of Native American culture or some parts of that. If we are to assume that Atreyu is in some way representative of a Native American culture, Mm. as soon as the assumed white hero Mm. comes into the story, Atreyu is no longer the hero story that we're following. Even in the first half of the book, we're following our Treyu story through the eyes of Bastion, through the white male lens, rather than this is our Treyu story. So even though racism that exists in the human world doesn't carry over into the story of Fantastica or its world building, it can be assumed that Michael Ende carried over his prejudices and his racism inadvertently into the way that he told the story because it still is from the perspective of a white boy whose story is treated with more importance. If anybody else has read the book or seen the movie and has um, more arguments or interesting topics to do with this, I'd be really interested to read about it, so let me know. This segment is where we ask ourselves, feminist or nah? <laughs> nah. Nah, sorry. <laughs> There's nothing in the novel that is actively feminist. It's not a feminist manifesto. You know, we're following a white male character through his journey of self-discovery. There aren't many female characters. It wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> there are a couple wives as like the annoying wife of the gnome. Mm-hmm. So we still have these gender gender binaries even within yeah. Fantastica. So Atreyu discovers these two people living together. We assume that they're husband and wife mm-hmm. or they're in a romantic relationship or a relationship of some kind. And they live on the edge of the three gates. Um, and Atreyu has to go through the three gates to discover more about his quest. Mm. So he stays with them for a little while. They both assume these very specific roles. The woman is the carer, she is the doctor, and the man is the professor, and he is researching the three gates and what might be beyond them. And his life's work is dedicated to research, whereas her life's work is dedicated to practice and caring research and specifically male research is deemed more valuable in our world than caring and specifically female carers and the practice of caring the the male is given the time and space to go on his own journey and his own 
seemingly fruitless investigation of this thing. Like, he's allowed to just go and investigate this thing that no one really cares about and is just his, you know, passion project while the woman has to, you know, she she has to work hard, she has to follow the rules, she has to take care of him because he's not taking care of himself. Again, we see male characters getting the freedom to experiment and female characters having to work so hard just to be taken seriously by following the rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could be reading too much into these side characters. No such thing. No such thing. (laughs) (laughs) And then the childlike empress. And we touched on this before. While she is a woman and she is a woman that has power and is in a leadership position, which is actually something we don't see that often in fantasy novels. But at the same time, and we talked about this before, she doesn't have an identity. She's not a person, she's an idea. She is projected upon by the male characters. We only really hear about her through their eyes and it's always, oh, she's so beautiful and how, you know, perfect she is and pure she is. But we never get to know anything about her because Mm -hmm. she's nothing more than what we see through the male gaze. I would also argue that in this book, more than in any other one I've read, this woman is described as an object because she's not given an identity, she is not given a journey herself. She actually is an object or an idea for everyone to um, respect and look at and fall in love with, but she's not actually a real person. I think it's quite an important fact that her name and her identity is grounded in Bastion. The story that we get is that this young white male gives her a name and determines her identity for her. So, nah. Yeah, nah. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Any final thoughts? What do you think you learnt from this book? I, I do think I came away with A, read more kids' books. Kids' books are great. And I think it was really nice to just read a book meant for children, even though it's really heavy and dark and full on. I loved that. And also just the the importance of stories and of reading and of enriching ourselves, especially in our crazy social media world. I think that hit home for me. That was like my big takeaway was like, even if the story is about an asshole named Bastion, maybe it's still worth reading. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And finally, final rating out of five. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this the whole time. And I think I'm going to give it... Oh, it's so hard. I'm going to do it out of 10. Okay. Bold. No. No, I'm changing the rating. I can't. Out of five is too hard. I'm doing it out of 10. I'm going to give it a 7.6 out of 10. Whoa. Okay. Maybe I regret that. You just shook up the rules so much. Can I just say that in my notes, it says final rating out of five. And I warned you. I wrote notes. (laughs) Um, I'm going to do my final rating out of five because I stick to the rules <laughs> and mine is 3.75, which makes more sense than 7.6. Absolutely not. <laughs> so there you have it. Our final ratings. I'm sure someone uh, who did maths in high school, <coughs> not me, can figure out your rating out of five and my rating out of ten. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. And you can follow the community library on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library. You can also use the hashtag the community library on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Next episode, I'll be sitting down with a different guest and we will be discussing The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. And I encourage you all to read along. And thanks for hanging out with me, Bonnie. Uh, anytime, Agari. I love reading a good book. <laughs> thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. I wish I was called The Many Coloured Death. Honestly, that is a formidable title. <laughs> Let me just check if we're still recording. Yes. Oh, we love that. What's this? What are eyes? Eyes. <laughs> we're like, what? Well, visual. Visual is the word. I'm, I was like, oral. That's ears. It's a brush of fresh air. Bre- brush? Breath? It's a brush of Shut fresh up. Air. It's a breath of fresh air. I think. Wait, you have to delete me doing bad maths. <laughs>